John, uh, and a little bit in Matthew last week, um, and some in Luke. And I'll invite you to join me there this morning. Luke chapter 23. Um, so I'm realizing as I'm looking around, there's several, most of you were here last week, but some were not, but because what we covered is so much uh, guys, this is so important, and it was new for me, and if you just heard it the first time, I really want to ingrain it a little deeper in you, so I'm going to do some review, and it's probably going to take me about five minutes to do this to cover what we did last week. Maybe more don't start your clocks. Like I say that, I don't mind what it's going to take, but it's going to take more than a minute or two to do it, because I want us to really uh, kind of get this. So here's where we left. You remember? Pilate. So we have Jesus is being tried by mankind. So way back when we started the book of Matthew, three and a half years ago, back when we were in the genealogies, from that day until now, we have been moving toward the cross of Christ. And now here we are just three hours from that. We're down to the final three hours before the cross. So we're getting very close. It's going to take us a while to work through, a few weeks to work through these last few hours. But where we left off last week was the governor, Pontius Pilate, is going to declare Jesus innocent of the charges that have been brought against him. But he's not going to release him, and you guys already know he's going to end up on the cross. So how is that possible for someone to be declared innocent by the ruling government multiple times? So to kind of review, here's where we've been. There was a Jewish trial that had three phases to it. The religious Jewish trial, they ended up accusing and fighting Jesus in their minds because they didn't know who he was. They found him guilty of blasphemy. And in their minds, that's worthy of death. The problem is they don't have the power to put Christ to death. So they need, and catch this, they need the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to carry out what they think should be done to Jesus. So they take him to Christ. That began the three phases of the Roman trial. We looked at phase one last week. Point number one this week will be phase two of that trial. Point three this week will then move us into not completely exhausting the third phase. So we're going to have to do that. That's why, and by the way, Matthew doesn't cover all of the things. We have to look at the various gospels, put them together to see a fuller picture of what happened there at the trial and death of Christ. So it went down like this. How can Pilate declare him innocent and yet not let him go and he ends up ordering him to be crucified. How is that possible? Well, it goes back to as the Jews bring the Lord Jesus Christ to Pilate, they need him, but there's tremendous... Last week, guys, I emphasized this. I spent 15 minutes on it at least because to me it was so important. I had never read this last few weeks' text with this awareness before, and it really answered a lot of questions for me. As they approach Pilate, there is tremendous animosity between the governor, and the Jewish leadership. Now, there's always animosity, but with him particularly, they especially despise Pilate. Multiple reasons. Here's the main two. One, he so looked down on the Jews as a Roman governor, he's aware of Roman empires over many different nations. But this Jewish nation, in his mind, they're just weird. They have all these strange rituals and rules as part of their religion. And for some reason, the empire doesn't just crack down on them. They let them kind of be an exception to the rule. Well, he comes in, new sheriff in town, 
And his attitude is, I'm not going to take the time to get to know these people, to understand why they are the way they are. And then the second thing there, he just intentionally does things that he knows will anger them. I end up offering three. I'm not going to develop them. I'm just going to categorize them. Two of them, if you'll remember, had to do with idolatry. So they had these emblems, these flagpoles, and at the top there were these, these objects made out of metal in the form of an eagle or in the form of the Emperor Tiberius. Well, most any Roman ruler would take those off when they're coming into the city of Jerusalem, not Pilate. He leaves them on and he just knows that they're going to view that as idolatry. And they got very riled up. On another occasion, Jerusalem needed an aqueduct. He had it built, but he forced them to pay for it with temple money. The third thing had to do with he, he built these shields and formed these shields. But he put the, the Roman emperor, Tiberius' name on it. So two of the three things the Jews see as very idolatrous. And I mean, that's like grounds for fighting and war and rioting and even dying if need be. On the third, with the shields... They end up actually reporting Pilate back to the emperor. He doesn't report. As a prefect, he doesn't report to the senate. He reports directly to the emperor. Probably thinking that Tiberius is going to say, hey, you Jews stand down. He's doing this to honor me. Instead, he had to be shocked when he gets reprimanded by Rome. And now, he can't afford, this is key, he cannot afford to be reprimanded again. He needs to stay on the good side of the Jews. He doesn't want to show all those cards, but he's fearful. If they report him again, it could cost him certainly his job. It might cost him imprisonment. It could be even worse than that. And so now he doesn't need them to report him. He doesn't want to upset and offend them. But at the same time, they need him to give the verdict. Again, when we put Luke and John together, in particular, it went down like this. They brought Christ to him. It was very early on the Friday morning. No doubt a bit irritating for him to have to get up so early in the morning and try a case. He's told that the Jewish leadership has a man outside. His name is Jesus. I'm, I'm reading between the lines. Well, send them on in. Well, sir, they're not going to come in because you're a Gentile and they believe that they come under your roof that that, that will defile them. And so you're going to need to go outside. So I'm sure that here takes him more. So there's already this tension and animosity. And now here goes Pilate has to go outside to try the case there. When he arrives, he asks the Jews, what are the charges? Are you remembering this? What are the charges against this man? Do you remember what they answered? Do you remember that answer? What are the charges against this man? Here's why we review. Their answer was, if he was not a criminal, we would not have brought him to you. So in other words, translation, don't ask questions. Just trust us, move this thing along and give us what we want. Pilate, I believe, in that text in John, gets very irritated with their lack of giving charges against the man. He says, well, then you just take him and try him according to your laws. They say, in essence, we would, but we can't put him to death, and that's what we need. So now both sides are irritated with each other. They have a history together. Pilate knows Caiaphas. He knows Annas. He knows the various leadership of the, of the Sanhedrin. They know him. They don't like each other, but they know that they both need each other. And so finally, we found in Luke, verse 23, or chapter 23. Let me get there myself. And... I'm not going to reread verses 1 through 5, but finally they get around to the charges against Christ. And they come up with three that are not the three that they come up with in the night in the Jewish trials. Charge number one, translation. He's a troublemaker. He stirs up the people. He's misleading the nation. He's perverting the nation. So that was back in chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Second charge. We're here because this man is teaching Jews not to pay the Roman tax. 
He's forbidding Jews to pay the Roman tax. Third charge. And he declares that he is the Christ, the King of the Jews. He's, we found him teaching that he is the Christ, the King of the Jews. Pilate being an astute man reads, reads, reads through all their nonsense and what is fake and what is real. But he has to address the king question. So he takes Jesus inside, away from them, and he starts asking Christ, are you the king of the Jews? If you'll remember, Jesus starts talking how that his kingdom, are you the king of the Jews? He starts saying how his kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. If it were of this world, his people would be fighting and it would have been turned over to the Jews. But it's not of this world. It's a whole different thing. What he's trying to say is it's not a threat to the Roman Empire. Pilate then says, so you're admitting, in essence, you are a king then by talking about your kingdom. The Lord says, you have said so. You have so said. Yes, you said. I'm agreeing in the affirmative, but it's a qualified affirmative. By that, I don't mean what you mean by me being a king, but yes, I'm a king. For this reason, I've come into the world to proclaim the truth and declare the truth and bear witness to the truth. That's why I was born. That's why I've come into the world. And after doing all that, this man who's tried many cases, who knows a criminal when he sees one, goes outside and tells the Jews the bad news for them. Listen, I've tried this case. There is nothing worthy of death. I find no fault. I find no guilt in him. Right then, he should have been released, but he wasn't. Why? Remember the tension and the dynamic and the animosity on each side needs the other and they need him. He doesn't want to offend them. He doesn't want to get reported back to Rome. Now with that in mind, let's read part of our text today. Luke chapter 23, verses 5 through 12. And this will lead us into the second. So they have this leverage on him, but they need him. So he comes out, not on the screen, but there in your Bible you see verse 4. I find no guilt in this man. Verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Remember how we said last week? He heard one main word in verse number five. So they're urgent. He stirs up the people. He's teaching all throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even down to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked, is he a Galilean? And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, oh, this is good news to Pilate. So he is a Galilean. He belongs to Herod's jurisdiction. Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod, who, him, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Herod just happens to be in town. He, Herod, is the ruler, the Roman ruler over Galilee, where Jesus lived his life in Nazareth, where Jesus did most all of his ministry, just visited down to Jerusalem, and now Herod's in town. Pilate thinks, yes, I want to send him over to Herod. Sure enough, he does. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, total different attitude. He doesn't say was glad. He was very glad. Why? For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. I mean, Jesus has been doing all he's doing in his province, in his territory. He had Galilee and he had Perea. He and he would split his time between the two, and man, he would hear all these things that Jesus was doing. He had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. He's, Jesus is on trial. Pilate sent him, so Herod starts asking questions. 
putting him under an examination. We don't know the details. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us the details of Herod. Only Luke gives us this scene. So here's all we know. Verse 9 is key. So he questioned him at some length, but he, I think those five words right here are so key. They're probably the main thing in this whole section. But he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, they're following him from Pilate to Herod, vehemently accusing. Herod is questioning, they're accusing. Jesus is saying absolutely nothing. I don't know, is Jesus looking off? Is Jesus staring straight ahead? Is Jesus making eye contact? And just not, is Jesus looking at them and then looking back? But he will not say anything. Though they're vehemently accusing. And then we have this summation. I'm going to go tell you guys, I'm not preaching this text. I'm going to pull a few things out. I don't have time to go through all this. But verse 11 says, And Herod, with his soldiers, the idea there is his bodyguard, he would have had a large army. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him, Jesus, with contempt. And in their mind, he is worthless. He is worth looking down on. He's despicable in their mind. So he goes from wanting to see him to all of a sudden now, he and his Bodyguards are looking at the Lord with contempt and they mock him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, something that a royal person would wear. All I can think of is maybe Herod had some extra clothes on hand. Go get my such and such, and they bring that out. Here's how we're going to send him back. He claims to be the king of the Jews. Again, I'm reading to him like they put that on him, and then they're going to send him back. Verse 11 again. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod, commentary from Luke, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been in, at enmity with each other. Would you notice with me, number one, the second phase of the trial this morning. Of the Lord Jesus in the, in the Gentile portion of the Roman trial. Phase two is the following. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Why? Pilate doesn't want to, he's found no fault, I find no fault in him. He does not want to offend the Jews. They keep pushing. Pilate knows full well, I cannot in good conscience have a man executed that I have found no fault in him. His Roman mind is like, that is totally wrong, that's an injustice, that's not my job, my job is to not let that happen. I'm not going to do it, that's what he's thinking. Then they urge and they start pleading again. They will not accept that as an answer. I tried him. I took him in there. I heard your charges. He's innocent. He's guiltless. I'm going to let him go. They will not stand for it, so they urgently keep pleading. Remember, he used the word Galilee, and that's good news to him because this sounds like this is not my problem. This is Herod's problem. And so he's going to send him over to Herod. And sure enough, off he goes, and that ends up being an exciting thing for Herod. Real quickly, let's do the following. I want us to notice three things about this man, Herod. Number one, do you remember who this one is? If you've been with us a while, there are multiple, as you're reading the New Testament, and you come across a, a name Herod, but through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, you'll come across this name, and you need to understand there are multiple Herods. Herod the Great is probably the most famous, but there's two or three others in the New Testament. This man's name is Herod Antipas. What is he mostly remembered for? This scene? And, write this down, Herod Antipas is the one who put John the Baptist in prison and eventually had John the Baptist beheaded. Why? What did John the Baptist do? 
John there to preach against Herod's adultery. Do you remember that scene? So as you're writing that, just hold on the note. Don't put it up quite yet. In fact, let me have your attention just for a moment. Now hear it. John the Baptist dares to preach against Herod's adultery. But it's not just any kind of adultery. Do you remember it? Herod has a wife, but he has his sights on another woman who is married to another man. But the other man is not just any other man. It was his own what? It's his own brother named Philip. It's his half-brother. So he's a son of Herod the Great. Philip's a son of Herod the Great. Herod, Antipas, has a wife, but he really likes his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Herodias. Man, they love their name. Oh, they love their name. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, marries, Her marries, marries Herodias. But this woman, it gets worse. She's not just his sister-in-law. She's also his niece. So here we have Herod the Great, who has a family that's so twisted, two of his sons not only married the same woman, they married the same woman that's one of their nieces. This is a twisted, this is the man that Pilate is going to send the Lord Jesus Christ. You examine him. That's the man that John the Baptist preached against, and for his efforts he was thrown into prison and eventually beheaded. Now as we're looking at chapter 23, notice verse number 8. So this is good news to Pilate. This is going to answer his problem. This is my out. I get to send him to another man. He can handle this and he can make the ruling. Don't you remember that thought? I'm going to let another guy make the ruling that I should be making. So he's going to pawn off the Lord Jesus Christ to him. And sure enough, what Pilate sees as a situation in a man to be avoided, an irritant, Herod has a hold of it. In Herod's mind, man, this is a bucket list opportunity. Would I, would I be willing to try Jesus? Absolutely. Thank you for that. I know we don't get along, but man, thank you for this. Oh, no, you're doing me a huge favor. All right, send him on. I'd love to hear from him. I've been wanting to see him for a long time. Why? Because when I think about it, for the last three years, Herod has never been able to see the Lord, but he keeps hearing all these glowing reports, and they're absolutely true. It can't be fake. There's too many eyewitnesses, too many changed lives. Over and over, he's been speaking and preaching and doing miracles and healing people and even raising the dead. In his mind, I would love to see it. Now, this guy is so sick and so twisted, so self-absorbed, and listen, so callous, that knowing that this man is probably in the last hours of his life, all he can think is, well, I really hope he'll do like a miracle show for me. But the Lord will have no part of it. So the second main thought I want to get across about here is the following. If you're right, notice, write this down. Since Herod Antipas was living in blatant adultery, I'm going to propose to you, Jesus should have been the last person he wanted to see. Oh, he's excited to see Jesus. But Jesus should have been the absolute last person he wanted to see. This is God in the flesh. And here he is living in adultery. So why is he so excited? Apparently, by all things that I can recollect from this passage, it appears to me that Herod wants to see Christ because he has a seared conscience. He has no shame whatsoever. He doesn't even feel guilty in front of this person who he knows is a holy man of God who's a teacher of the God of Israel and here gets in and over and he's just there, just starts running his mouth. He can't stop talking, but the Lord is saying absolutely nothing to him. That's how seared his conscience is. Something has happened to this man. Now let me be clear. 
we sin, Christian, and the Lord convicts us, and we are ready to repent, we run to Christ. We don't run from Christ. But if you are in your sin and you're not willing to repent, then I would propose to you the last thing you want to do is to be, see Christ. If you leave this world having never repented of your sins, you're going to see Christ. You will be judged by Him, but you will not want to see Him. It will be the worst day of your existence. This man doesn't have enough sense to know, oh, I don't want to see Him the way I've been living. We're not talking about a man ready to repent. We're talking about a man that his conscience has let him down and has failed. It is so callous. So what's happened? This leads to the third thing I want us to get. And then we'll go to our second point today. Look at verse 9, because I... Look at those five words at the end of verse 9, which I think are maybe the key. To me, they stood out the most. Of all the things we could hit in this passage. So you, you get the gist, right? The chief priests and elders are accusing Jesus in front of Herod. They're trying to get him killed. But guys, it's not ringing any more true. In fact, it is ringing less true in Herod's ears than it would have in Pilate's ears because Herod, more than Pilate, would have known. Listen, he didn't tell them. He didn't want to offend them either, but he sat there thinking, all the stuff you're saying, this man's a troublemaker. He's in my region. He's in my province. I've never heard of anything good. Nothing bad has ever been attached. It's just not ringing true. And so he's not accepting. He keeps asking questions, but the Lord keeps stonewalling. Some have even proposed and criticized the Lord that he should not have met Herod with silence. The Lord should have talked to him. But I think we're taking notes. Write this down. Herod got exactly what he deserved. Now, this is a key thought. I'm going to slow just for a moment. Herod, Antipas, deserved silence from Jesus because Herod, Antipas, repeatedly silenced the voice of God in his life. Herod receives silence from Christ because Herod repeatedly silenced the voice of God in his own life. So, Jeff, how did that happen? Well, I've already told it, but we need to break it down. Think about it with me this morning. Here's a man who is married to, to a woman but his heart starts longing for another woman because he's a ruler of the Jews. He knows what we call the Old Testament. He knows that. He's not like Pilate. He's not resisted learning this culture. He's embraced their culture. He loves the Jewish culture. He's studied it. Here he has this longing in his heart, and he knows that the Bible says that to do that would be adultery on many levels and incest on top of that, but adultery on many levels. So what is it? Here's God speaking to Herod through the Bible, and yet he blows right by it, totally ignores it, and goes on and pursues her and steals her away from his brother and leaves his own wife, knowing what God has said. He silenced the voice of God, but God's not done. God sends him a man of God named John the Baptist. John the Baptist dares to teach and to preach that what he's doing, he already knows it, but God sends him a man of God to preach the principles of the word of God to him. And what does he do? He shuts it down. He squelches and silences the voice. God is talking to Herod through John the Baptist, and he has him put in prison. And every day for about a year, John the Baptist is in prison, and Herod is well aware, every time he thinks of John, you know he hears the voice of God telling him that the relationship he is in is sinful and it must be repented of. But he keeps silencing it. And as if that wasn't enough, through the word of God and through the prophet, 
In a most twisted situation, that we can't give all the details, it has a lot of sordid, perverted details that ends up including Herod's daughter-in-law dancing provocatively in front of him and his friends. Herod Antipas actually ends up listening to the voice of his wife Herodias, who hates John the Baptist. He is afraid of John the Baptist. She hates John the Baptist. He listens to his wife Herodias and finally and ultimately silences the voice of God in his life by putting the prophet John the Baptist to death by having his head cut off. And now he stands right with Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh in front of him, and God is not saying a word to him. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that what I'm about to talk about does not affect most of you. But I'm also, I've also been around long enough to know that what I'm about to talk about could affect some of you. If you're a Christian, this should not be part of your experience. But I want to ask you, don't raise your hand, is there anyone listening online? Is there anyone in the house that this has been your experience? There was a previous time in your life when you heard the voice of God. Was there a previous time in your life, though unsaved, when you care about what God thought, you thought about God, you considered what He had to say on things, it mattered to you, though you may not have yielded to become a Christian, you considered all of that. That was one time in your life, and now here you are, years later, and you can't remember the last time you've considered and deeply cared about or heard the true voice of God in your life. You heard it before, but you don't hear it now. Is that the case? Is there a time in your life where like sin used to convict you? You felt the conviction of God in your life, but now you know you're living in sin, but frankly, you, you're like Herod. You don't feel any guilt. You have no shame. You don't feel conviction even. You're thinking, I kind of like to feel conviction, but that's long been gone. So that leads us to this. If that is you, how did that happen? What can you do? How, now, all of us need to learn how did that happen. If I just described you, or maybe you're sitting there and saying, Jeff, I think you just described one of my loved ones. If that is you, is this what happened? Was there a time in your life where a principle of the Word of God conflicted with your life, your love, or your way of thinking, and instead of yielding to what God's Word says about what your thought is, or what you love, or what you're doing, rather than just yield to that, to the Word of God, you stifled, shut down, silenced the Word of God. You said, I want my own way. I want my way of thinking. I want my lifestyle. And you just embrace that. Because of a principle of the Word of God, you're just like, I don't want to hear it. Is it possible that if that happened, that God followed that up by sending you someone to speak to you? To preach, as it were. That had to be like this. The preacher in your life could have been a parent. It could have been an in-law, a friend. could have been... A youth pastor, a pastor, someone on television, a co-worker, somebody who cared enough to tell you the truth about that. Here's what happened in your heart. You got angry at them for daring to have the courage to tell you the truth. You get angry at them, you don't want to hear it. And now here you are years later, and you I can't remember the last time you fell or heard the voice of God in your life. What should that person do? Well, first, I've got to be honest with you. You may not be able to do anything. You may have crossed the line. That is potential. But what I would advise a person that is in that situation is, first of all, literally, if this is you or someone you know, 
Beg God. Just start begging. I don't even sense his presence. Beg God. Don't, don't do the old if you're out there. No, God, I know you're out there. I just don't sense. Beg him to speak to you again. Beg him. Nobody doesn't have to. You shut him down to silence him multiple times in different ways, but beg him to speak to you. But do it this way. Beg him to speak to you, and then go seeking the voice of God. Put yourself under teaching and preaching. Read the Bible. You say, but I'm not getting anything out of it. Pour yourself into the Bible. Be reading it. Seek the voice of God. But be sensitive to, like, what is God saying? Don't just go seeking it, but be sensitive. What is God saying? Lord, I want to hear you if you say anything to me. And then the big kicker is this. Be surrendered that when you hear the voice of God, this time I will obey. You say, I don't want the voice of God to ever be shut down in my life. Then pray for it, seek it, be sensitive to it, and surrender to obey to it. I think by you being here this morning, unless you were kind of compelled and pressured into being here, that's an indication you are seeking the voice of God. But here's my question. Have you prayed before you arrived that God would speak to you? Are you right now sensitive? Like, yeah, I'm seeking it, but are you, like, sensitive to what the Lord is saying to you? And the big question is, when you hear it, will you obey it? Number two, as we go over to Matthew this morning. Join me in Matthew chapter 27. And let's notice Pilate's dilemma. Pilate's dilemma. So he sends him over to Herod. Doesn't work. Herod ends up sending him back. And that brings us to phase three. I'm going to read this text, verses 15 down to 26. We're not going to cover all of verse 26 this morning. We'll stop at verse 26a and what we'll cover. But as we do, you're going to be hearing four phases unfold. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time in the first phase, because it's verses 15 to 23. Then we'll spend a thought on verse 24, a thought on verse 25, and a quick thought on verse 26. So here's the scene. You ready? Herod sends him back. The Jews will not stop. Herod doesn't do anything. They still are after. They want, they want resolution. They want Jesus to be executed. So it comes down to verse number 15 of Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed. That means there was a custom. We don't know where this custom came from, who started it. Is it did Pilate start it, potentially? It, it, not really a lot about it, but we know it was there. At the feast, this is the feast of Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. There's the custom. Every year at Passover, the Roman governor lets one of the Jewish prisoners go free. And they had a notorious prisoner. Not just well-known, notorious, kind of a negative connotation on that word. They had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Quick note, I'm not, not saying this is so. A little side note. You see the name Barabbas. Do you remember what Bar means? Remember we're talking about Simon Barjona. Simon Barjon. Bar means Simon Peter, what? Son of Jonas. Simon Barjona. Simon, son of Jonas. Simon, son of John. So we know that Simon Peter's dad is named John. He's the son of John, Jonas. Look at this man's name. He's called Barabbas. Okay, wait. What does Abba mean? Say it confidently. Father. So here's this man, 
Bar Alex, son of the father. That's what his name means. Some manuscripts even put his name as Jesus. Jesus is the equivalent of Joshua in the Old Testament. It was a common name. There were multiple Jesus in the New Testament. Some texts offer that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. So there's Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father, small f. And then there's the real Jesus, the real son of the capital F, father. These two people are going to be put before the Jews. So they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. Verse 17. So here goes Pilate. He's got a plan. When they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you? So there's this custom. Somebody's getting released today. Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus? See, see how he says it? It kind of lends that. Do you want Barabbas? Do you want Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who's called Christ? Which one of the two Jesuses do you want released? And then we have a commentary about what's going on in Pilate's mind. He's not, he's not a dummy. Look at verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He seemed right through the ploy of, of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and elders. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, my verse 19, I think, is a bit of a turning point. I'm not going to spend a lot on it because I don't know that it's just, we don't know a lot about it, but I think it's a pivoting turning point. Besides, while he was sitting on the, so remember, here's his plan. I'm going to present these two. They're going to make a choice. Somebody's going free today. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. A Roman governor's wife would never bother them unless it was absolutely something major important. He probably was wondering, what? And again, we don't know how long this takes. Apparently, it takes a little time. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. So there's a messenger, or messengers. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Your wife sent a message, sir. You may want to do it. I'll be right back. And off he goes. She says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. She suffered many things because of him in a dream this day. Why? Verse 20. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again. Again, verse 19 has happened. Verse 20 is happening. While verse 19 is happening, here comes verse 21. The governor again said to them, this time he's going to wait for an answer because he got interrupted last time. Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. In my mind, when I read that, I kind of thought, I put myself in Pilate's shoes. I wonder if he said, wait, wait, what, what, whoa, hey, hey, I said which one do you want me to release? Not kill, release. Verse 25. As 
big verse. I'm not going to spend a long on it. You ought to feel the weight of that. Hey, don't you worry about that. You let his guilt and his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released from him Barabbas. And having, notice, having scourged Jesus, that tells us, uh oh, something's already happened here. We haven't really factored in yet. We'll have to do that next week. He released from him Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. How did this happen? Notice number one. So we have four little scenes, little mini scenes within these, these verses. Number one, so there's the third phase of the Roman trial before, back to Pilate, phase one before Pilate, phase two before Herod, phase three, Herod sends him back to Pilate. Number one, a foolproof plan fails. It's absolutely foolproof plan. This is perfect. Problem is it fails. So a while ago when we were in Luke, guys, uh, I did not finish reading for time's sake. Had we kept reading past verse number 12, you would have seen in fact. I may go there myself. I don't have to find it because I've moved my marker. I want you to listen because your, your, your next note is going to come right on this. Listen to verse 13. So Herod tries his case, sends him back. He's wearing some robe apparently that would be very royal. Sends him back. Herod doesn't. Can't find anything either. Verse 13. Now watch. So what happens right after Herod sends him back? So now it's moved back over to where Pilate is. Here come the chief priests and the elders. Here's Pilate. And now the crowd is gathering because they know this custom that he's supposed to release for them a prisoner. Luke chapter 23, verse 13. I'm just going to read it. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Did you catch it? Write that note down. Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15 in particular says, Pilate says that he and Herod both had tried Jesus' case. Neither one found any guilt in Jesus. I don't know why he does that. Well, listen, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to punish him really good, but I've got to release him. There's not, nothing deserving of death has been done. I've just got to let it go. But they will not let it go. Second time, they will not accept that as an answer. So apparently they start getting very belligerent and insisting that he has to be put to death. So again, Pilate is in a dilemma. So did I already give you point number two this morning? Pilate's dilemma. I don't know if I said it that way. But we have Pilate's dilemma is in Matthew 27. And then the first thought in these uh, verses, these 12 verses this morning, is this foolproof, supposed foolproof plan is not going to actually work. It will fail. A foolproof plan fails. So the Jews hear Pilate says, again, Herod found him not guilty, I found him not guilty, I am going to let him go, but they refuse to, to budge. But in, you just read it, right? So let's hit quick. Pilate has what seems to be a brilliant idea. Oh, this is brilliant. All right. You want to play hardball? That's not the people decide. So he has this great idea. The custom, the reason all these people are gathering, they know that I'm going to let someone free. So apparently the bright idea that seems foolproof to him is I'm going to get the absolute worst criminal that we have available to us, and I'm going to put him as one option, and I'm going to put Jesus as the other option. Jesus, the healer, the great teacher that everybody loves, and we're going to find some notorious uh, uh, person to put side by side, and he brings them out. By the way, I think I know, I'm getting ready to get it. I was wondering if I forgot something. 
So his plan is, I'm going to put these two guys side by side, and surely these people who are in town for their feast who worship their God, who's a holy God, they can't miss this. I'm going to put evil right beside absolute good. I mean, absolute perfect good. And I'm going to say, one of these two is going to go free on your streets today. Who do you want it to be? They've got to come up, and he makes an assumption that they will get the right answer. And they're going to, Herod's going to make my decision for me. That failed. The mob, the people, the crowd is going to make my decision for me and do what I should be doing myself. They will call for, it to, for Jesus to be released. And then I can say, hey, Jewish leaders, hey, sorry, I know what you want. The crowd has spoken. Somebody gets to go free today. Second thought into this, Mark chapter 15, verse 7, what Matthew calls a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, 7 says what he's in prison for. Let this sink in. He's in prison for murder that took place during an insurrection in the city of Jerusalem. So Mark and Luke both allude to that. He's a murderer who has taken part in insurrection. Oh, the irony of all the things. He could have been accused of. This is a, an insurrectionist who actually has also committed murder. So Pilate has to think, man, this is perfect. They can't miss this. There's a commercial uh, by one of the banking systems that says this is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, right? This capital one. So this, ladies and gentlemen, has to be the easiest decision. I mean, they've got Charles Barkley. You've seen that commercial. So they've got little kids, like this tall, picking things for basketball. And then there's six foot six, Charles Barkley. And one of the kids says, I'll take Barkley. Right? Ah, I told you. He's like, yeah, this is the easiest. The banking system, the Bank of Capital One, that's their line, not mine. But the Bank of Capital it's, it's easier than picking Charles Barkley on your basketball. That's with a pure little kid. But this is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Who do you want, who's going to go free on your guys if this was Anderson? And there was a person who stirred up riots and mobs and is a known murderer. Or you can have Jesus go free in the streets of Anderson. We're picking Jesus of Nazareth to go free. So quick question. How is it possible that Pilate's plan, his plan fails? How? Does his plan fail? Well, these two things often come up opposite and yet tied and tethered to each other. His plan fails if you're taking notice because of the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man. His plan fails because of the sovereignty of God. What's a foolproof plan, perfect, can't go wrong, will go wrong because God has already determined that his son will die on a cross on this very day. And God even uses the depravity of man. Can mankind miss the easiest decision in the history of decisions? Yes, it is possible for us to miss the easiest of decisions. Look at verse 18. Moving on down, verse 18. For he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they, the chief priests and elders, had delivered him, Jesus, up. So Pilate, again, I keep saying this over and over, guys, he's cruel, he's arrogant. He's stubborn. Man, he's stubborn. He's proud. He looks down on the Romans, but he's made some foolish mistakes in the past, and now he's paying for it. And here he is, and we have a commentary on what's going on in his mind. He knows, you with me? This is not a criminal case. This is a rivalry. Caiaphas and Annas and his guys all around him have this man as their rival, and 
and they want me to do their dirty work and get rid of it. This man, he knows Jesus has not committed any crimes. This is about envy. This is a, he's, he's got to be thinking to, to himself. Why are they sudden, so zealous to turn one of their own over to the Roman Empire? It's one thing when we find their people. That's one thing. Why do they now, are they trying to turn over this man? Why do they suddenly care if he were out telling people not to pay the Roman taxes? What would they care about that? If he was stirring up an insurrection, what would they care? They would have come turning insurrectionists. By the way, you think, uh, Jeff, that's not really what the text is saying. Isn't that what verse 20 proves? Doesn't verse 20 prove that if someone really was creating such a stir and an insurrection and riots, that they would not be turning this person in? Verse 20 proves that exact thing. So Pilate, again, he's smart, he's witty, he's already read through this. And so here's his plan. I'm going to put these two men out there, and they're going to release Jesus, and that's my out. Here it didn't work, the crowd's going to do what I don't want to do. But then verse 19 happens. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So guys... There's a lot of conjecture about verse 19. Did God cause this dream? And I say God's sovereign over the dream. There is conjecture and tradition. Some tradition says that this woman actually ends up becoming a Christian. I hope so. I, I hope she's in heaven for her sake and for the glory of the Lord. I, I would have put it past the Lord to save her. Possibly. Some have even said that Pilate himself eventually gets saved. Though most tradition is that a few years after this, Pilate makes a big mess up in Samaria. He gets demoted, and he gets exiled, and he dies in France, in Gaul. That appears to be the word. If, does she become a Christian? We don't know. Did God give this dream? Would you word it that way? Who knows? How much did she know about the situation? Or did she just hear a little bit here and there, and she slept a little bit longer? And then the late morning, she ends up getting terrified by a dream about this man and sins where we don't know the details. We don't even know how Pilate responded, though I would assume he takes this as another sign from God that this man is guilty. The main takeaway that I took from verse 19 is that it buys time. It's a distraction. I'm going to assume that he has to leave his seat from dealing with the Jews. Maybe Jesus is back out there with him, or maybe Jesus is still inside. But he pulls aside, and he's over there, and they're talking about the wife's dream. And in that moment of time, these crafty, deceptive Jewish leaders, you, they see what he's giving it to those two and the people who are going to kick him. And so they start using the time to start stirring up the crowd with verse 20. The chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They start whether somebody's really loud or they're going to, hey, and, and they know who their leaders are. Release Barabbas. We're asking for Barabbas. Everybody with me, what? Release Barabbas is the one you want to be released, not Jesus. You're going to ask him to crucify Jesus. Everybody on board. And so however long that took, it was enough time to do what they did. Some have surmised that this man, Barabbas, catch this, he might have been looked at by some as an actual hero among the Jews. It would be like, yeah, go out there and cause problems for the Romans. Possibly. But I hope you'll get this, and I'm not just trying to just nail these guys all the time, but to me this is so obvious. Even if in this mob, thousands of people, even if there are some who would look at Barabbas as a hero, potentially, the Sanhedrin, if they're consistent, if they really 
don't want sedition and insurrection, then the last thing they should want is for Barabbas to go free. Does that make sense? That's been their whole big charge. He stirs up the people. Okay, you don't want anybody out there that stirs up the people. All right, then why are you out telling them to release this man? Again, taking notes. The Jewish leaders hypocritically charge Jesus with, frankly, what's an unproven insurrection and sedition. And yet they call for the release of an actual insurrectionist who's also a known murderer. You see and feel the hypocrisy. They're working their way among the crowd. And that irritates me. That really, again, that's, that just goes against my sin. Like, like, hey, if you like insurrectionists, that's one thing, but don't go accusing Jesus of it if you're going to call for another guy that has been, his case is tried, it's proven. Barabbas was supposed to be crucified this day. But we know he's not. And that brings us to verse 20 to 23. I've never studied what I'm about to talk about, but guys, there is an understood thing. I don't know that I've ever been in a mob of people. I've referred to it. Oh man, there's a mob out here Christmas Eve, something in the mall. Actually, I've seen some footage, so yeah. It can get pretty rough on uh, Black Friday. Stay out of the way, right? Put those doors open and get trampled. All right. I, I've been in some ball games where some fan bases have gotten pretty riled up, and they're like, uh oh, this could get a little bit out of hand. But I've never been in a mob. Those that have studied that have said that there's actually a psychology of, of a mob that is unique and it is different, and people will end up doing things. They have no. no plan to do. And it just gets swept up in it. So I want to slow just for a moment and then we're going to go fast again. I want you to get what I'm about to talk about. Because I think it's something that might help us this morning. This mob ends up being you understand? They were very easily maneuvered. They were very easily manipulated. Why? Did you catch it? Here, Jesus and Barabbas, somebody's going free. They're going to end up senselessly mindlessly, baselessly, calling out for Barabbas to go free and for Jesus to be crucified. How does this happen? Because they're easily manipulated. And I ask myself, Jeff, why was this crowd such easy targets, easy prey? I came up with two things, and I want to share them with you. Number one, it's not stated in the Bible, it is my opinion. I believe there was demonic oppression going on, and demons were affecting these people, and they were just just overwhelmed by it and getting in to what was happening around them, not even knowing that devils were causing things to be forced into their mind. I believe that you say, that sounds mystical. Okay, if you don't want to buy that one, that's fine. The second one, I'm confident it's happening. I think this mob, put yourself in the mob that day. You're a Jewish mob. There's this Roman man who has a custom, and he's asking you this question that starts in verse number 17 and is finalized in verse 20. Which of the two do you want me to release? How does this happen? I think the mob makes an assumption, and here's the assumption. That, you with me? This is important. Whatever position our leaders are telling us that is the opposite position of the Roman governor has to be the right one. They don't know the details of the trial. They don't know the charges. They've not heard it. They're late arriving. They're coming in now for this custom. And lo and behold, there's the chief priests and elders and all them are running around and they're doing it all up. 
And all of a sudden, this healer picked him between two guys. We know him. That's the great healer. And all of a sudden, we're going to do what? Why? Don't ask why. This is what we're doing. And again, I believe in their mind they made an assumption. Whatever our guys say has to be the right thing because he's the Roman governor. And so they're going to go against that. And they're going to end up calling for crucifixion again without knowing the details against Christ. I thought about that and I come to some conclusions. It's actually it's from experience. Check yourself. Some people think and speak solely according to party line. Some people, some Americans, some Christians think and speak solely according to political party line. What I mean, if there's been 50 issues over the last 10 years, and they've been adults during that 10-year period, then their party, on all 50 issues, they think and speak exactly in line with their political party all 50 times. Do you feel that? Is that you? Don't say it out loud. Is that you? If that's the case, maybe the last 100 times, 100 out of 100, this is my political party, that's where I'm going. There are some people, they will fall on an issue exactly where the denomination falls. They always fall along denominational line. What's the issue? What do we believe? And they're looking for their denomination, their religious denomination. What do we believe on that? Tell me what I need to say. They're like this crowd. Because whatever you say has to be right if it's the opposite of them. They're the bad guys. Again, going back to the political party, there are some Christians who think all the Christians are in their political party and none of the Christians are in the other political party. Oh, by the way, Our people, I don't know the details, but this is what our folks tell us, so we're against you. You are? Yeah, what do you know about it? All I know is our people say we're against you. For others, it's their charismatic leader. They're, wherever their charismatic leader falls, that's where they always fall. Isn't that amazing? 100 out of 100. If that is you, you are ascribing infallibility to that person. To some, it's the news channel. I know you watch the good news. But those other news channels have a slant and a bias. And if you're 50 out of 50 just sitting there mindlessly, not even realizing how subtly they're presenting all the one-sided facts, it's like, oh, God, I know what I believe about that issue and that issue and that issue. Be careful. You might be being manipulated. There's two great evils that are taking place. Let's write them down. By the way, you say, Jeff, what should we do? We need to not go along party line and denominational line and follow some man leader or some news channel. I don't care how good a history you had with them. What you better do is issue by issue say, how does that issue square with the Bible and the Holy Spirit in me? That's going to be the determinant. And if my normal people are wrong on this, I'm just going to have to tell you, hey, I'm normally with you, but they're right on this. Or neither one of you, right? Somewhere it's right in here. Not a lot of that going on with that. Two great evils. Number one, the chief priests who were willfully using their influence for simple purposes to advance their personal agenda. This happens all the time. The other great evil is that the crowds were sinning because they were refusing to think for themselves. And that's a great sin. We've got a whole mob of people crying out for Jesus to be crucified 
and for Barabbas to be set free. And I know you're right, but just in your mind, answer, whose fault is that? Who's responsible in that situation? Is it the leaders or is it the crowd? Both. Both are responsible. The crowd is responsible. Look at verse 21 after you break that up. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And amazingly, they said, we want Barabbas released. Now watch verse 22. As soon as you write that, go back to your Bible quickly. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. He said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Would you look with me? Let your eyes actually look at verse 23 for a moment. Look at verse 23. You see 23, Eddie? So, so here's the first question. What? Barabbas? What am I going to do with Jesus? Crucified. Why? What evil has he done? You see verse 23? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. I'll propose to you verse 23b is not an answer to 23a. The first answer, what am I going to do with Jesus? They gave an answer. Crucify him. Why? What are the charges? I need to hear the charges. Their answer? Louder. Crucify! There's no adage, and a lot of people use it in their argument. You have a weak point, you get louder. Got a weak point. Uh oh, boy, they're killing me on this one. Get louder and more animated. I am not saying every time we get loud, animated, and passionate that we have a weak point. But I'm saying sometimes when we know we have a weak point, rather than realizing, you know what, I need to really research that, and you're making some pretty good points, and I might be on the wrong side, rather than do that, just get louder. What are the charges? Crucify! I'm going to hit the second thought quickly here in just a moment. Do you hear Pilate in verse 23? Verse 23 is his admission. Let's go back and focus the light on him. Jesus hasn't said a word in today's passages. Jesus all day is just standing there. But he's always there. But now we're going to look back at Pilate. And I propose verse 23 is Pilate's conscience way of saying to do anything to this man would be an injustice because he is not guilty. What charge? What has he done? You don't have any. I don't. His conscience is admitting. This is the wrong thing. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, this man will do the very thing he knows is wrong. How? Of this whole scene, the leaders, the mob, and Pilate, J.C. Ryle writes the following. You got to get this. He says, there are a few things so little believed and yet realized as the corruption of human nature. I'll say it again. There are a few things so little. Do you know there's a lot of people, Christians, who think people, even apart from the Lord, people are basically good. I don't believe in that. I'm not trying to be down on us. I know you probably think the last few weeks, man, Jeff looks out down on the human race. There are a few things so little believed and yet realized as the corruption of human nature. Let us, grace you, let us never be surprised at the wickedness there is in the world. Let us never be surprised by the wickedness there is in the world. Let us mourn over it and labor to make it less. But let us never be surprised at its extent. There is nothing which the heart of man is not capable of conceiving or the hand of man of doing. Left apart from God, left to ourselves, we're going to miss it more times than not. We're going to go away from the Lord and we're going to embrace Him. 
That's how a foolproof plan can mess up. Can't miss this one. Well, they did. We did. Number two is verse 24. A pointless gesture. There's a pointless gesture that takes place. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Can I go quickly into the mind of Pilate again? Again, I'm reading between the lines, but I'm trying to think along with this man. I put myself in this position. This is not going how he thought. I think he's thinking these thoughts. I can't believe this. This is totally wrong. This is not right. This is wrong. I can't believe it. I'm actually getting ready to take part in something I know is wrong. I'm, do I have a choice? I don't know that I have a choice. A riot is about to break out right about that time. In my mind, I'm picturing Caiaphas over there, not far away, but because the crowd is so loud, mouthing, with a little extra emphasis so I can understand. You better get them what they want. You better get them what they want. You can't afford a riot. And they're getting more worked up. And so finally, here's his solution. He's going to make it really clear. Hey, I want you to know that I have nothing to do with this. This isn't me. This is you. I'm going to make that clear. And then he washes his hand of the situation. There's two problems, and I think you already see it, right? Problem number one, you can say all day long you have nothing to do with it, but Pilate, you're the man in charge. You have the authority. Yes, they're doing what they're doing. I get it. There's a lot of pressure, but you have the authority. And the second thing, I don't care how much water you pour over your hands. I don't care how much water you pour. You can have somebody pour water over your feet, over your head, hands. You can have somebody pour water over your head. You can have somebody just pour buckets and buckets of water over your body. You can have somebody take you up into a whole pool of water and dump you under the water. Physical water and wishful words will never wash away any sin. There's one thing the Bible teaches that washes away sin, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this man is not washing his hands of the guilt and the blood of Christ. Say what you want, do what you want, wish all you want, but you're involved in this, and a lot of the fault and the blame falls directly at the feet of Pontius Pilate. Takes us to verse 25, number 3. Would you write it down? Very quickly. A foolish statement, and I mean a foolish statement. And all the people answered. So here it is. He wants to make it clear. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Say, you do it. And all the people answered. His blood be on us and on our children. Quick, if you're taking notes. Apparently, it looks like, and many agree, that Matthew's wording here and all the people, it seems like he's pointing beyond just the thousands that were in that mob that day. He's actually pointing to the whole nation of Israel, the nation of Israel as a whole, and their whole attitude of rejection toward Jesus as their Messiah. Let his blood, let his guilt be on us, and they are actually incurring the guilt of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate is not released, but they're incurring the greater majority of the blame. Remember we said a few weeks ago, all of our sin is what put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But humanly speaking, here's this nation of, of Israel led by these people, led by their leaders, and they're crying out, let his, guys, this has to be 
This is one of the most foolish things. Why? Our words matter. Your words matter. You are going to be judged by every idle word. How much more so by words such as this? Let his blood be on us. Let his guilt be on us and on our children. One of the worst things that's ever been stated. How often we just use our words flippantly. And I don't know if that's what they did, but boy, this, this was a foolish statement. What I'm about to say does not excuse all of the atrocities that have been done against the nation of Israel. So do not hear that. All the atrocities have been done against Jews for the last 2,000 years. By that I mean tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of Jews persecuted and killed. Many atrocities. This does not excuse that. But you can't help but wonder how much of that has happened as a result of verse 25. Romans chapter 11, Paul writes about this tree, this olive tree, that is like the tree of salvation and redemption and blessing of God. And the natural branches in that are the branches of the nation of Israel. But they have been cut off. We're in a time where there's a separation of the nation, nation of Israel from God. All except a remnant. Praise the Lord. There is a remnant of Jews who do get saved. Like the apostles and like the apostle Paul and others in the New Testament. And a few others in the 2,000 years since. But the vast majority of the Jews have validated this claim by their silence. By not recognizing that Jesus is their Messiah. And you can't help but wonder, is verse 25 part of the reason why the Jewish branch has been cut off of the olive tree of blessing. And God has brought in the Gentiles and we've been grafted in and now we're tied into the root. And we're receiving the sacrament of blessing of salvation from God. Is this partly why? I can't help but wonder. Yes, this is partly why. They incurred this upon themselves. God was listening. And then lastly, number four, verse 26, the first part of the verse is a weak and faithful decision. Very weak and faithful decision. Verse 26, and all the people answered, his blood be on us. I'm sorry, verse 26, he released for them Barabbas. And had discouraged Jesus to live him to be crucified. Pilate did this. And guys, again, put yourself, I'm telling you, thousands, there's demonic oppression, their leaders are stirring them up. Pilate is under immense pressure more than I've ever been in my life. And I realize he's looking at a mob of people that are being incited by demons and devil and also by corrupt Jewish leaders. But also know that he came, and there's a reason. Here's a crowd that is shouting out baseless claims and demands of him. And there stands Pilate, who has the power and the authority as the Roman governor, but he will not do the right thing. Because he's crippled in the moment because of his past. He's being haunted by his past foolishness. The foolish things he's done has caused him to be crippled. And so here he doesn't have the courage to stand up to the mob or to the Jewish leader to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Why doesn't he do it? Because they have leverage over him. And that's your next note. They have leverage. The last thing he can afford is to be reported again to Rome. He's thinking, I'll be demoted. Again, I'll probably go to prison if he realized I called. I cannot let this flame up into a riot. I cannot let that happen. And so here he stands, just absolutely crippled. He wouldn't have been so if he hadn't been so stubborn, hard-headed, and prideful and arrogant when he entered into his office and actually tried to govern these people with some understanding of them as a nation. But instead he had to show his power and it backfired on him. And now when he needs 
to tap into that authority and have a backbone. He doesn't have the courage, and this is exactly how this happens. How an innocent man, declared innocent multiple times, officially innocent, can end up being crucified. Your last thought this morning, and I'll be done, is this one. So Pilate lacks courage because of his past. They have leverage over him because of his past. But God gives leaders authority. God gives leaders authority to use that authority to do the right thing. Not to appease crowds by doing the easy thing or the popular thing. God gives leaders authority to use that authority to do the right thing. Not to appease crowds by doing the easy thing or by doing the popular thing. Now here's the thing, as I'm winding down, I'm looking at a whole room full of leaders. You say, Jeff, I'm not a leader. Most of you are a leader in some area of your life. Many of you. I'm a leader. I have multiple areas of leadership in my life, and I've had that for many years. So here's a man that needed to realize that he did it, that all leaders are going to give an account to God. Pilate knows, this is so important, Pilate knows the right thing to do, he just doesn't have the courage to do it. Pilate knows the right thing to do. I should be letting him go, but he's hoping Herod would do it. And he's hoping the crowd would do it. Well, neither one of them. Now, here, he doesn't have the courage to do it. So I want to ask you this morning. Are you, as a leader, don't raise your hand, but in your mind, think, is there any area of my life where I am a leader? If you are a leader, do you have convictions? Do you have convictions like these are things I stand for? And so my next question is, will you stand for those things even if you're the only one? Will you stand for your convictions even if you're the only one? Young people, if you're the only one at school and you know the right thing and everybody else is doing the wrong thing, will you stick to your convictions or just give in? In your community, in your family, down at the job, ladies and gentlemen, if everybody else has found a loophole and a way to cheat the company of time, showing up late, leaving early, taking long breaks, if everybody else is doing it, are you going to do the right thing? If they found another loophole of how to, again, do something wrong, and everyone's doing it, are you going to do the right thing? I forget the details of the study, but this, I was told, was a real study. Ten people would be sent into a room, and there would be a person at the front of the room that was the teacher, and they were told that they were being tested. The problem was, nine out of the ten people were in on the test. Only one person was being tested, but they did the test over and over, and I think this was college students. The test went along these lines. Ten people came in, nine of them ran on it, but playing dumb, one is actually the test person. And there's cameras going. And there's three lines on the board. There's a seven-foot line, a five-foot line, and there's a three-foot long line. And the people are told that when I point to the longest line, raise your hand. And so the person goes up and points to the middle line. Nobody raises their hand. Then they point to the seven-foot line. And the person being tested inevitably raised their hand. But no one else would raise their hand. And the vast majority of the time, after a few seconds, the person would take their hand down. And then the person pointed to the three-foot line. And nine hands in the room go up. And there sits the one person knowing that's not the longest line. Vast majority of the time, their hand goes up. If that wasn't enough, we're going to flip it. Now, this time, I want you to raise your hand when I point to the 
shortest line. And so he points to the five-foot line. Nobody raised their hand. Points to the shortest line. Person puts their hands up. Nobody has their hands up, and they kind of take it down sheepishly. Points to the seven-foot line. Everybody raises their hand. Person ends up raising their hand. It was like 80-some percent of people. Rarely would anybody say, you point out the wrong line. Sir, do you understand the question? I said we're pointing to the longest line. Yes, you're doing it. Rarely would that, would you be that one? Would you have the courage of your conviction? Leaders are given their authority to do the right thing, not to do the easy or the popular things. So I'll close by asking you parents. you got parents in the room. Check your heart. Is it in your heart? Is there a desire or an expectation? The school will set the standards for my family. Or are you going to set the standards? Is your mindset, parents, the other families on the ball team, what their parents allow, that's what I will allow. What your kids are, where they're able to go, what they're able to look at, what they're able to listen to, all those things. Where do you set the parameters? Is your mindset, I'm going to let the school set the parameters, or is your mindset, no, school system, I know better than that, I'm going to let Mike Spurgeon set these standards for my kids. The church, y'all are going to set this, really? Is it up to us? Is it up to the youth group, up to the youth pastor, the pastor, the elders to set the standards for your family? Y'all be shocked how I many young people, young people run around town with one of these. These are great things. These are great things. Got a lot of potential. But do you realize that most adults have not yet learned how to tame this thing and they're putting it in the hands of 12-year-old kids whose minds are not developed and like they're going to be able to control this thing? Well, the other kids on the ball team and the other kids at the school, and some of you are probably thinking, 12. My kid got one, they were nine. Think about us first. Think about us first. Just before we pray, in what area of your life are you a leader? And ask yourself, do I lead by conviction? Or do I hope other people will do the right thing because I'm going to follow them? Lead by conviction. Grace, we can encourage you this morning. Let's, let's all commit to studying God's Word issue by issue and checking with the Holy Spirit rather than just signing off on what a political party or a news channel or a charismatic leader or a denomination says we're supposed to believe. Let us go issue by issue. Not just hold up some, assuming our guys surely have to be right. And that comes from us studying the Word of God and seeking the Lord's will. My last thought just before I pray is this. Please, as much as within you as possible, don't allow yourself to get to a point where you can no longer hear the voice of God because you silence the Word of God or because you silence the message of God. I want to encourage even us who are Christians, keep being one who prays for God's voice to be spoken in you every day, to be a person who sees God's voice by opening His Word and hearing, teaching, and preaching, but always evaluating in light of the Holy Spirit in you. Be 
one who actually is sensitive in those moments? Lord, what are you telling me is my takeaway this morning, whether it be at church or in private devotions? And then be that person. Lord, whatever you say to me, I'm going to like amplify your voice and lower everybody else's voice because I want to obey what you show me. Be that kind of person. Don't be like Israel's leaders in this chapter. Don't be like Pilate and Shuri. Don't be like the mindless mob that ends up calling for the crucifixion of Christ to stand this morning. Father, would you go with us please this morning? We thank you for the word. Lord, I pray that all of us will be able to answer truly Pilate's question in verse 22, what will I do with Jesus then? Lord, may we all be able to honestly from our hearts say that we have received him and we trust him. May we never ignore him or reject him. Father, please let all of us have received him and trust him. Lord, let us be people of conviction that will get to know you and your will for our life. Even if we're the only one doing something, we will have conviction. We will have obedience. We will please you and you alone. Let that be what motivates us this week. I pray in Christ's name. Thank you for coming.